morning, everyone. My name is Cherana Wurigo, and I'm incredibly excited to be here. May the Lord bless my speech and our time together in his word. In my culture, my Māori culture, we have a proverb. We walk backwards into the future with our eyes fixed on the past. I first heard it from Uncle Ray, who heard it from un Uncle Monty Ohia, a Māori pastor who did extraordinary things for ordinary people. It means the past shapes us, gives meaning to our present and future identity. It's not living in the past, but drawing strength from those who come before us, their hopes, stories, and lives. I wanted to bring a bit of that thinking into my message today. We evoke that every Sunday when we acknowledge country. It's a beacon of hope that justice for our first peoples will grow out of love and a deeper understanding of their sorrow. Certainly James, by his letter, understood this idea. He led a church of Messianic Jews, perhaps the very first church in Jerusalem into an inexact future. He had no blueprint for a church of Christ, but he had his witness of Christ's revelation as Messiah King to give shape to the present and future identity of the church. James also had the deep wisdom of a pastor whose boyhood memories of playing with his brother Jesus, being fed together at, at their mother's table, and listening to their father retell the Exodus story each Passover, means that we too can listen in, partaking as it were, in an intimacy with his own Jewish tradition. tradition. And this, I think, is a sweetness of an ordinary life where we can listen and God too can do great things. I myself can testify to the sweetness of an ordinary life living as I do in one of the church houses in Glee, um, in Derwent Street. It's supremely old with mangled walls and bedroom ceilings, awkward additions from the 60s, 80s and now. And I've had to wrestle and um, sometimes still do with my idea of living in something so unrefined. But still, there's a joy to inhabiting a space where friends have lived before whose reworked walls and floors and furnishings bear the loving contribution of this community at St. John's. And even in this humble kitchen where I sit now, where I've borne the sorrow of no children, God has shown me such sweet mercy and the revelation that he alone is enough. The sweetness of an ordinary life. But our God is not ordinary. He is inordinately gracious. And so what I'm gonna to do today is talk about two moves of his grace to show where James fits into the story of God and how God wants us to live. Rather than work through the second half of James 1 line by line, I want to draw out a deeper understanding of the verse 125. And he writes, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. This is a bid to his Jewish listeners to remember Sinai, the location where their ancestors first received the Torah, the Ten Commandments. And I want to show that as an early move of God's grace, it invites us into a greater zone of neighborliness, just as it did for its Old Testament listeners. Then I'll connect it with Christ's Sermon on the Mount when he preached I've come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. It's another move of God's grace as Jesus teaches us how to live. 
And I want to show how these two moves of God's grace reveals a storyline that pushes us into greater zones of neighborliness. It's a storyline that James builds upon so that we, when we look into the perfect law that gives freedom, our neighbor becomes the orphan and the widow, James 1.27, and those who suffer our reckless words or anger, James 1.26 and 1.20. So the first move of God's grace I'll mention is in Sinai. Sinai is the location of the Exodus story where Israel was constituted as a new nation under God. When the children of Israel arrive in Sinai, the memory of the Exodus, the scars and the oppression is palpable still. Israel fled Egypt as slaves and arrived in Sinai as refugees. Though they had seen Moses part the Red Sea, witnessed the Egyptian military overcome, the lifeless bodies of their pursuers washed ashore, though they had been watered and sheltered and led by God's presence, even as they arrive in Sinai, Israel is not fully free. They bear the psychological scars of hundreds of years of oppression and the anxiety of an unknown future. We were witness to similar horror recently as Afghanis fled Kabul. And as the diaspora who arrive and shall arrive at our shores as refugees, traumatized and displaced and unsettled, they possess a freedom, though not fully free. So, in Sinai, with the Israelites, the first move of God's grace was to give the great body of Israel a new identity as a nation. The Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is my Torah. These were the first words out of God's mouth to Israel. And he says, you shall have no other gods. You shall not make any graven image. You shall keep the Sabbath and so on. Reading the Ten Commandments on within our own freedoms, we can forget the significance to a body of former slaves. These aren't just laws from a severe God. They are statements of resistance. Don't worship other gods as your former owners did. Don't work without a break as you were forced to do seven days a week without relief. God gives Israel constitutional laws so that they can become a nation with new freedoms and rights. In his mercy, he institutes the Torah. And God gives Moses the Torah etched into tablets of stone that sets out what love and faithfulness looks like with God and one another. They are laws that free up Israel to move into its new identity as a nation, the Ten Commandments being an outline of how they were to live. And along with laws, God includes acts of neighborliness. So, for example, you shall not murder is expanded to include places of refuge for people who didn't intend to kill. You shall not steal is expanded to include restitution of five times the ox or four times the sheep, a system of compensation to restore relationship. God expands the law so that mercy and justice appear and Israel is shown what it is to live in community and to be neighborly. Decades later, Moses recites Torah to a new generation of Israelites. Standing at the border of Canaan, overlooking the Jordan crossing, what we see is the law being expanded into new contexts. Moses, Moses gives his generation new laws, and these are laws for social justice and community and neighborliness. These laws being given to him by God. So 
So for example, the command for Sabbath rest is expanded to include a wholesale forgiveness forgiveness of debts in the seventh year so that no one is driven into an unending cycle of poverty and every family and person has a chance to recover. Here at Canaan, God adds new laws to the covenant of Sinai, extending it into a new context that pushes Israel into a greater zone of neighborliness. Now, the second move of God's grace I wanna mention is Jesus's ministry in Galilee. You may recall that he starts his public ministry under empire, the nation um, at that time is living under Roman political power and oppressive Herodian rule. So when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, the first thing he says is, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Like Moses, coming out of slavery in God's words being, I am the Lord your God, this is my Torah. Jesus, fresh out of the wilderness says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. I will set the oppressed free. This is a bid to his listeners that he is the Messiah. Reading this from within our own democratic freedoms, we can overlook the significance of this statement to a people living under political oppression. See, Instead of seeking out the political elite, Jesus marks out who he intends to put first, who he intends to elevate, those with the least political power, the poor, the prisoner, the blind and the oppressed. He sets up categories for whom we need to put first and it's a practice of grace that can make us at St. John's incredibly proud of GAP and the way that it serves the most vulnerable in our community. Like God who instituted a practice of law and mercy in Sinai, Jesus inaugurates a practice of grace and he preached, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's inviting his listeners to remember Exodus and the prophets, but more than that, he's inviting them into a new context, that is himself. He came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so neighborliness here takes on a new form, Jesus, giving his listeners a new context, himself. It's an edgy and risky statement because for Jesus, living under empire, the neighbor has been expanded to include those of racial and social economic and physical difference. In this statement, he is revealing the intention of God's heart to reach for the other as we reach for him. And it delights and it invites an obedience to be in sync with the God of Sinai, the delight of which is not in the outcome, but in its performance, the sweetness of an ordinary life. And so what has all of this got to do with James? And let me link this back to James. Um, and so raised as James was in the wisdom and tradition of Proverbs, he would have been familiar with this proverb from the father to the son. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. 
bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. And so when he writes in his letter to look intently into the perfect law that, that gives freedom, he's writing out of his own tradition. He's writing to a community of Messianic Jews with knowledge of the same tradition. So when he writes, when he writes the perfect law that gives freedom, it's a bold and provocative statement, not because it recalls their tradition, but because he's pushing his people into a new place of understanding. He explodes the traditional understanding of the perfect law into a space encompassing Christ. The perfect law that gives freedom is an echo of the Sinai memory, Torah etched onto tablets of stone. Seen through the context of Christ and echoing Proverbs 3.3, 3, this becomes an invitation to etch Jesus onto the tablet of our hearts. It becomes an invitation to them and to us to etch Jesus onto our hearts. Jesus who fulfilled the law and the prophets becomes Jesus, an etching of love and faithfulness on our hearts. Of course, the fullest expression of Jesus's neighborliness was him dying on a cross. But for Jesus, the God of Sinai would not be our God. But for Jesus, the Exodus story would not be part of the, the miracles that we can tell about an amazing God. But because of Jesus, who gives us a new Exodus story, we are rescued from the slavery of sin. This is a story of grace and second chances and reconciliation. And we can be a part of it when we believe and we follow him. And by doing so, we join the storyline of the God of Sinai and Jesus on the Mount in a Christian life that is both venturesome and obedient, that reaches not only for the parentless and the widow, but those with the least political power, the poor, the prisoner, the disabled and the oppressed. It's a vision of a Christian life filled with mercy and fidelity that will push us into greater and greater zones of neighborliness. And so James, by James and his simple statement, the perfect law that gives freedom, God has shown us his story. May we walk backwards into the future, our eyes fixed upon him. Thank you.